The idea is that Christians have fellowship, not only with other Christians who are alive on earth at the same time, but with all those believers who have gone to heaven before them. If this is so, and I believe it is, then one of those believers, one of that great cloud of witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 12, with whom I have had a deep sense of communion through the years, is C.S. Lewis. This is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 11, My Journey with C.S. Lewis and Other Companions, After Hours with Will Voss. Welcome to Pints with Jack, the podcast where we read through the works of C.S. Lewis. But today is an after hours interview episode. So different from our regular programming with the letters to American Lady. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, particularly because I didn't get a chance to interview Will Voss the first time around. Andrew beat me to as we as we pick the people that we interview each season about Sheldon Van Auken and that journey. And obviously, listeners, as you guys know, I love A Severe Mercy. And so I'm just really grateful to be able to have this conversation here. And he has a very fascinating journey. And so I will uh, dive right into his biography and then we will dive into the interview. So today I'm joined by former guest of the show, Will Voss. He was born in Sleepy Hollow, New York and grew up in La Jolla, California. I actually lived in San Diego, California, in the Del Mar area for a while. So that's a fun little connection. He and his wife, Becky, have been married since 1988 and have grown, have three grown sons. I almost said have grown three sons, <laughs> which would be kind of true too. <laughs> um, his own father was Jim Voss, former organized crime wiretapper who came to personal faith in Jesus Christ to the ministry of Billy Graham in 1949. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in drama from the University of California at San Diego, a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. He has served churches across the United States, is currently the pastor of the First Congregational Church of Yarmouth on Cape Cod. He's the president of Will Voss Ministries and the author of 14 books, including The Man Who Received a Severe Mercy which as I mentioned, he discussed in season five. Wow, that actually is a couple of years ago now. <laughs> as well as the book we'll be discussing today, My Journey with C.S. Lewis and Other Companions. Welcome, Will Voss to Pines with Jack. Great to be with you. I can confirm for you that um, I did not grow my own sons. <laughs> but if anybody needs proof of miracles, you know, take a little boy and feed him potato chips and it turns into muscle. So there's a miracle for you. <laughs> I love that. And how old are your kids now, actually? Well, they're all grown up. The youngest is 24. Our middle son is uh, 28. And our oldest is 30. And I have my first uh, grandchild who's turning two next month. Oh, Hard to believe. I am so jealous. I'm 32. My sister's a little older. And so I have... I have no kids, but I have three nieces that are five, four, and two and a half, and just the most adorable things in the entire world. And my grandparents always joke that God gives kids before grandkids because you might not want the kids after the grandkids <laughs> uh, because you get all of the joys of being around them without the like discipline and responsibility that comes with actually raising kids. That's right. It's a really good deal. <laughs> I love that. Well, today 
it's not really yet past a happy hour period. And so I am just enjoying some spin drift, some sparkling water. What are you enjoying? I'm having almost the same thing, San Pellegrino. Delicious. Well, cheers. Cheers. All right. So there's, to set the stage here a little bit, a lot of incredible stuff in here. And so I was really trying to think through, you know, there, there's a lot of pivotal moments in your life from these different experiences and stories. Obviously, there's the big Lewis connection, his impact on theology. There was all of these different individuals you have met in the Lewis community that were very close to Lewis uh, and had a relationship with him directly. Obviously, Douglas Gresham in that time period. And so, as I was putting this together, I was like, all right, Holy Spirit, guide which way you want this conversation to go because there's so many different ways this could go. Uh, And so, I've put more in here than will be possible for the period that we have together, but nevertheless, we'll see what Holy Spirit takes us. So I wanted us to start out with just, if you could put in your own words, a high level overview of just kind of the different seasons or different pivotal periods in your spiritual journey that have kind of brought you from where you are to this journey as a pastor, CS Lewis expert, the relationships you developed with that. Uh, it was quite a journey. Well, I like the fact that you framed that question in terms of seasons because uh, my book, My Journey, has a photograph on the front of Douglas Gresham and and C.S. Lewis together on Addison's Walk in the autumn. Mm. And Lewis, as you probably know, wrote a little letter in the last month or so of his life in which he told his correspondent that, you know, he thought that autumn was his favorite of the seasons, but like the autumn of life, it doesn't last which can sound either depressing or if you're a believer in the resurrection of the dead as Lewis was, I think he was looking forward in hope. Mm. I just love that way of thinking about especially our spiritual lives in terms of seasons and the fact that Lewis saw himself in the the autumn of his life right before he died. <laughs> so mm. it kind of makes one wonder, did he view the winter of his life as the very beginning, you know, when things were lying dormant? Because he begins surprised by joy by saying that he was born in the winter of 1898. Huh. He was born in November, which is actually in the autumn. <laughs> but did he think of the first part of his life as the winter where things were lying dormant waiting to come to life. I don't know. It's interesting to to think about one's life that way and it's probably not something you really think very deeply about until you get to be maybe my age you start to think about it. I turned 60 this year. So I'm just 5 years younger than CS Lewis was when he passed. Wow. So yeah, the seasons of life, spring is is the time where seeds are planted. I I think of that as um, the first part of my life. I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Had a lot of intellectual questions in the early part of my journey. That's where C.S. Lewis really helped me. And I would say that that springtime of planting seeds and everything sort of lasted all the way through my time in seminary. And then I would look at like the summer of my life as the time of growth. You know, I got married right out of seminary. Five years later, we had children, you know, so we had a growing marriage, growing family. And I also had the privilege of serving a number of different 
churches over the years in different places and seeing people helping other people to grow spiritually and, and growing churches and all of that. You mentioned uh, my time with Douglas Gresham in, in Ireland. In a way, I feel like I've been in the autumn of life since that time, the, the time where you really reap the harvest you know, of the things that were planted earlier on in life. So that's, that's where I feel I am now. I hope winter is past, but winter may still be <laughs> in the future. We'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm in Michigan. Winter is right in front of me as we speak out this window. So <laughs> let's dive into a little bit those early periods of your life. And I actually want to start, I'm just genuinely curious uh, a bit about your dynamic with your father and the impact that he had in your life, uh, that family dynamic. That was touched on briefly in the book. I know you've written an entire other book on it. So for listeners, if you're very curious, we mentioned in the beginning, he has a book called My Father Was a Gangster. And so I'm just kind of curious how that played a role in the, the spring season of your life. Yeah, it's interesting when I go and speak at C.S. Lewis events, and then there's a book table, you know, and, and if I have that book, My Father Was a Gangster, you know, next to some of the works uh, that I've written about C.S. Lewis, people look at it and go, is this uh, fiction? <laughs> and uh, I tell them, no, actu actually not. My father really was a gangster. He worked for Mickey Cohen back in the 1940s in Los Angeles. These days, a lot of people seem to know about Mickey Cohen, maybe because there was a, a movie a few years ago with Sean Penn called Gangster Squad. Mm. Anyway, my father uh, worked for the mob and uh, did wiretapping, electronic surveillance. He also did uh, pass-post betting on the racehorses, the movie The Sting with Paul Newman and uh, Robert Redford was really based on my father's uh, story of past post betting on the racehorses using electronics to do that. That was sort of the midpoint of my father's life. And then suddenly he came to personal faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Billy Graham mm. while he was involved in organized crime. And he, he quit organized crime. He paid back everyone he'd ever cheated or stolen from and basically spent uh, the rest of his life, you know, serving the Lord, trying to point other people to Jesus. I came along later in his life, but but as a result of that, the impact on me was that, you know, I saw somebody who obviously their their life was changed by a spiritual encounter, and so I never had any doubts about that aspect of faith. I had a lot of intellectual questions, but I could see the psychological and emotional impact of faith because of my father and, and my mother as well. There's a number of different sections as you bring your father up. I mean, first of all, it sounds like just really incredible how, I remember when you were talking about did he have this, this, I might butcher it slightly, but this runaway hotline for people that ran away and he just didn't exactly know how this was going to work, but his personality was just, oh, we'll just figure it out. This needs to be done. Uh, which, first of all, I love that personality. When there's something good, you just, you do it. You don't need it to be perfect until you do it. It's, it's worth doing something good, even if it's not done properly. But anyways, um, and you mentioned that had an impact on you. And I think right around this season, so you, you have that go on. And wasn't this right around the same time period where there was some stress going on from the workload and you, you had to pull out from UCSD and there was an individual that had committed suicide and that had a pretty big impact in your life early on. Can you kind of just talk about all of that period? 
Yeah, a lot was going on in my life in that period when I was in college. And yes, my father, his whole life, because of what he had gone through, and he had a real compassion for uh, young people. He had committed his first uh, crime while he was still a teenager, armed robbery. When he came to faith in Christ, he, he wanted to help other young people going through the same sorts of things he'd been through. And and late in his life, that led him to uh, want to establish a nationwide youth crisis hotline, a runaway mm-hmm. hotline. Our family lived in San Diego at the time. Since you're from San Diego, you may be aware of this. Of course, now we're we're more aware of all the people coming over the border mm-hmm. into our country legally and illegally. In those days, in the 70s and early 80s, the greater concern was with the runaway youth population that would end up in San Diego because it was a warm place where kids could sleep uh, on the street or on the beach in in the winter. And so my father was seeing that problem and wanted to establish this hotline, but he knew how he was going to work the electronic aspect of it, and he knew all about telephones and all about how all of that should work. But my question to him when it began, and I was probably, uh, I guess I was a junior in college, and I said, how are you going to advertise it? How are you going (laughs) to help kids all over the country find out about this? And and he said, I don't know, but we're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You know, he was a visionary like that. And it was amazing because in the early days of that hotline, word about it got out and a number of companies came on board to work with us. You know, the yellow pages across the country advertised it. And and then there was even a special, if I remember, on uh, CBS because they, they got interested in it. So my involvement with it was that I was working for my father's organization at the same time while I was in college. And he asked me if if I would take the calls that were After hours ties into our program for today. (laughs) I said, sure. I don't think I really had a choice about that, but (laughs) he was my boss telling me that's what he wanted me to do. And at the time, it was like no big deal. You know, uh, maybe uh, a few calls at best would be coming in. We went from just a few calls a month to first 1,000 calls a month and then 6,000 calls a month Wow! during the time that I was working on the hotline. So I was regularly woken up in the middle of the night to uh, talk to um, a kid, you know, who was on the street uh, across the country from me. And in many cases, they didn't Mm. know, you know, I was somebody just a couple years older than they were trying to help them and and get them to shelters and... um, which was the main thing, but but also trying to encourage them along the way. And yeah, it was a huge eye-opener to um, what a lot of kids uh, were going through then. And of course, it's still happening in our country today. You know what's so beautiful about that story is there's there's like a Lewisian theme <laughs> embedded in that of, I think it's in Mere Christianity where Lewis talks about how, wait, some of the greatest vices can become the greatest virtues. You know, a, a cow can't really be much special. It's got nothing good or bad really going on. It's just going to be kind of what is. And I think of your father's journey that you sort of shared. There's this, there's very colored past, but like it was used in a more negative way at first. Right. And then just that those gifts and talents then when turned for the positive became an extreme positive. I mean, 
6,000 a month, what a gift. I mean, that's just so beautiful to see that just re, those talents and that drive and that vision, ambition just repurposed in such a beautiful way for the kingdom. I love that. So thanks for sharing that. So you have this, this, your early childhood. Let's turn to when Lewis first entered the picture for you. Well, I was pretty young, nine years old, uh, fourth grade public school in Southern California. My teacher read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to our class. I think it was sort of in the lead up to Christmas time. My family was involved in church at that time, but I did not make any connection between Narnia and the Bible or Christianity or any of that. It just overwhelmed me as a story. Mm. And I was just enchanted from the very beginning of that and and hearing it in school. And then when our teacher f- finished reading to us, she said, you know, this is the first of seven books. And um, so I went home and asked my parents to buy me the books, which was an unusual thing for me to do because I wasn't much of a reader. I was a very slow reader. But that book became the beginning sort of of a journey for me of a lifetime of reading, which which is really what my book, My Journey, is about. It's it's not just a biography, but it's really more of what I would call a literary memoir about how books can transform our lives. And, and so that was the first. That's where it, it began for me with Lewis. But again, I had no idea it had anything to do with Christianity. I was only nine years old. I had no idea who C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis was or that he'd written any other books. <laughs> I just loved those stories. First of all, I just love that there's an overlap with that to, to Lewis's life. I mean, just such a similarity there of books at his early age, actually around the age of nine, <laughs> played such an impactful role in his life and just guiding him through tough periods. And you had from your biography, a, a significant amount of like just tough periods and ups and downs too early on and some bullying that happened in school. And that was something I wasn't to- totally aware of or didn't really think about until many years later that uh, when you get to the silver chair, you know, there's there's this story of bullying going on. Mm-hmm. And it was many, many years before I knew anything about C.S. Lewis's life and found out that he went through the same thing he kind of escaped into books. And the same thing happened for me in a time when I was being bullied in school. I escaped into books. I escaped into Narnia. So yes, an amazing connection there that I didn't realize until many years later, sort of looking back on it. I love that. You had a number of impactful trips then as well that really started to bring you closer to Lewis and bring you more on this journey. I'd love to dive into a couple of them if possible. First one with the Ireland trip and some of the experiences on that trip and how they kind of fit into the bigger context of of your story and you're ultimately coming more and more integrated with Lewis. Right. So to set the stage for that, so I began with Lewis reading the Narnia stories. I didn't know he'd written anything else. By the time I was in ninth grade, so between fourth and ninth grade, I was just reading the Narnia stories for the first time. By the time I was in ninth grade, my aunt, I think for Christmas, bought me a book called The Joyful Christian, mm. 131 Readings in C.S. Lewis, which was just right for me at that stage of my life. I don't think I could have handled you know, reading Mere Christianity or any of his other nonfiction books, but they were just these little snippets in The Joyful Christian that, that addressed a lot of intellectual questions I was starting to have 
about my faith. You know, I had just come to personal faith in Christ when I was about 13. So now about the time I was 14, starting to have a lot of questions. And and Lewis really helped that way. For a period of time in middle school, I wasn't involved in church at all. And then through a friend down the street who invited me to, to go to youth group, I got introduced to church and youth group. And my youth pastor was a huge C.S. Lewis fan. So he encouraged the reading of Lewis and often would read little snippets of Lewis's books. And, and so then I went from the joyful Christian to try to start reading uh, some of Lewis's books. In fact, I, I read Letters to an American Lady hey. when I was in uh, high school. I tried Mere Christianity for the first time, but didn't get very far. I tried Screwtape Letters, didn't, didn't get very far, but started to make an attempt at reading some of his other books. So then by the time I was in college, I was really deeply intrigued by Lewis the little bit I knew about his life and the books I was reading. And I was determined that I, I was going to read everything that C.S. Lewis wrote. And I decided the way I wanted to start doing that was to travel to the United Kingdom and visit the places where Lewis had lived and wrote his books and take the books along with me that I hadn't read yet. I went to my father and told him what I wanted to do. I didn't have the money to do it. He graciously paid for the trip. I spent about four weeks traveling around the British Isles. I was 19 years old. I went by myself, which I guess now looking back on it sounds a little bit brave. I didn't think about it that way. It was just what I wanted to do. So I read a whole bunch of, of Lewis for the first time on that trip. Wow. I'm literally thinking of, because you also did the Holy Land trip. I remember the first time I went to the Holy Land and, and you kind of had an experience where, when you went there, but we were walking in the footsteps of Jesus and we were reading just a bunch of the different sermons and parables that he was doing. And I'm loving that you did this for Lewis <laughs> as well. <laughs> yes. Now, to, to be sure, Lewis is not on the same level yeah. as, as Jesus. I don't, don't look at him that way. Some people wonder, you know, do I believe in a holy quadrilateral instead of a holy trinity? <laughs> But let me just set the record straight. I I do not. Lewis, as a follower of Jesus, has has been a great help to me in in pointing the way. And and it was fun to sort of walk in his footsteps, though I wouldn't have put it that way at the time, and to see the places where he lived. And when you go to a place that has really— impacted books that you like to read, you know, it gives you a whole nother dimension to it. I'm sure you've experienced mm-hmm. that. It it flavors your your whole reading. You know, Lewis was kind of famous for denying the biographical element, you know, in his writing or really in anybody's writing. He really believed we shouldn't read books through the lens of the biography of the author. But you know, Lewis shares a lot of himself nonetheless in his in his books and certainly the places where he lived impacted you know the books that he wrote including Narnia which mm-hmm. he says, you know, Ireland, uh, certain parts of Ireland, the landscape and everything uh really influenced, you know, what he was describing in terms of the landscape of Narnia. Mm. I'm torn between going to a little bit on on 
the Christian theology and how Lewis influenced it, or actually going to your, your C.S. Lewis trip in England and Oxford. Let's go to your, your C.S. Lewis trip and not the Ireland one, but the one in, in England. And just because you met incredible amounts of people. By this point, you're, you're now even deeper and deeper into Lewis, uh, into the expert world and stuff. But that played a really big role too in a lot of these relationships you developed and the people you met and conversations you had. Uh, I mean, that was just an incredible period. Of I was I was just enthralled as I was kind of reading through this and jealous at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so how did how did I get to that point? So I I had this journey when I was in in college that took me deeper into C.S. Lewis, and then after college, I I went to seminary because I really felt called to Christian ministry and wanted to have a proper preparation for that and. Didn't read a whole lot of Lewis while I was in uh, seminary. It came up from time to time, and I continued to find Lewis helpful. And so then graduated from seminary, got married, started to have a family, started to pastor churches. And I, I had a period in about 1996, thereabouts, where I kind of had a revival of my interest in Lewis. And I decided that, you know, I really wanted to share it with other people and and learn from other people in reading books together. So I started a C.S. Lewis Society where I was living at the time in Columbia, South Carolina. That was an amazing experience. We met in a Barnes & Noble. I advertised in the local newspaper. We had 30 people show up for our first meeting. That's amazing. And then along with that, I got really interested in trying to make contact with and meet and you know, discuss Lewis with people who had known him. Mm. So it was out of that time period that I started writing by email to Douglas Gresham. Douglas Gresham introduced me to Walter Hooper and to George Sayer. And at the same time, I made uh, contact with Sheldon Van Auken and met him for the first time. So, so that's where all of that interest came. And it was while I was starting the C.S. Lewis Society with Doug's help and encouragement, I put together a little C.S. Lewis tour and led a group of people over to uh, England. We didn't do Ireland on that first trip, but uh, we went to uh, Great Malvern where where Lewis had gone to prep school and we went to Oxford and Cambridge and uh, London. I think that's pretty much what we did on that trip. And George Sayer spoke to our group in Malvern. And Walter Hooper spoke to our group in uh, Oxford. And then George Watson, who'd been a colleague of Lewis's at uh, Cambridge, spoke to us there. And, and Doug Gresham spent three days with us in Oxford, showing our, our group all around and introduced us to the, the kilns. And it was an incredible time. Mm. This might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but I'm intrigued with some of those conversations of just... If you remember some of the stuff that came out of some of those, I mean, you're talking with, <laughs> I, I should not be making this analogy again, <laughs> the Holy Land analogy, and you <laughs> correctly, Lewis is not Jesus. I feel like it's like talking with the <laughs> apostles or the people that were close to Jesus, and then you hear these stories. It's like talking with the people that knew Lewis directly and hearing their stories. And obviously, a lot of this stuff has been captured in books, but there's just something about hearing it directly from someone who just saw the way they light up. I mean, exactly, and and it's like going to a place that influenced a person when you when you meet the other people who were impacted by that person. You know, the ideal would obviously be to meet 
Lewis, which I always explain to people. My book is called My Journey with C.S. Lewis and Other Companions. I've only journeyed with C.S. Lewis through his his books, but meeting people who knew him, you know, that that colors my my view of of who he was and what he was was like, and and so it transforms, you know, and enriches my reading of his uh, books and. There's lots of things I remember from that particular trip. I don't have my journal in front of me, but I I kept a very detailed journal. You know, every night I would write down the things that we had heard that day. My wife kept notes, you know, during the talks that we had from George Sayer and all the others, um, because I couldn't do that because we kind of did an interview style and I was doing the interviewing. But so I have really detailed notes the thing that really struck me about George Sayer was um, just his humility. Hmm. Towards the end of our, our time together, uh, I was actually talking to him on the phone. And I said, I wish I had more time to pick your brain. And he said, you'd be entitled to as much as my brain as I have left. <laughs> oh, that's really the sweet comment. And uh, he was just a dear, dear person that way and, and just you know willing to share of all of his memories. And uh, yeah, on that trip, I didn't get to know Walter Hooper very well. Um, that was just the beginning of my knowing Walter Hooper. But but from there, that uh, that led to my spending many more hours with Walter Hooper and, and getting to know him uh, pretty well. And, and it was also kind of the beginning of, of my friendship with Douglas Gresham. It was the mm. first time we met face-to-face. And um, that relationship, that friendship has flourished over the years. Yeah, there's a lot of memories that come to mind. Yeah, let's circle back to the Douglas one in a bit. But um, what was Walter Hooper like in, in some of those conversations that you had with him? Also a, a very humble person mm. who just um, obviously loved C.S. Lewis, loved the works of C.S. Lewis, and devoted his life to making sure that all of Lewis's works stayed in in print, devoted his life to uh, expanding the collection of Lewis's letters that were in print, that, that work that was begun by Lewis's brother, Warney. And that was incredible. You know, the, I remember uh, so many times visiting Walter in his home in Oxford in later years and uh, in his little home office. He had a number of shelves devoted to Lewis's letters. He had volumes of the the actual letters, not the originals, but I, I think photocopies of them, which he obviously used in putting together the collected letters, you know. And and of course Walter's own journey was um amazing. You know, he obviously eventually converted to the Catholic Church and and all of that and so we talked about that on a number of occasions, not my first time meeting him, but but in later uh, years. And another thing I loved about being in Walter's home was all all of the first editions, you know, he had of Lewis's works. Same thing with Sheldon Van Auken. But Walter had, uh, you know, many of the books from Lewis's library, wow. which were incredible to look at. I, I remember the first time I visited with him in his home, seeing Lewis's copy of uh, Boethius's uh, Consolation of Philosophy, 
seeing the the book about Norse mythology that Lewis had been given as a a prize when he was in prep school, just holding those and realizing the impact that those books had had on C.S. Lewis uh, was was incredible. I'm curious if you can articulate. You have these meetings with all these individuals. You've already come in at this point, like you were saying, you you're much more in your formation journey already and strong in your faith. What kind of impact did this have on your your theology or your spiritual journey? Did did it just make you go a little bit deeper relationship with Christ? Were there so many like meaningful theological shifts where you're talking with these people that are so incredible and you're like, whoa, I need to rethink this part of my systematic theology or I need to be more focused on this. I mean, just being around these individuals. Was there anything like that that came out of this? Certainly, certainly a, a long and gradual process over time. The beginning of that theological impact was going back to my college years and when I mm. read Mere Christianity all the way through for the first time when I was on that trip to the British Isles. And it, I finished the book while I was in Donegal. Mm. Uh, I had a head cold. It was raining cats and dogs outside. I was sort of confined to my bed. I didn't feel like going anywhere. And that's uh, when I finished reading Mere Christianity. And I can remember being in that same little room and reading that famous part about, you know, that's been characterized as a liar, lunatic Lord. Uh, you know, Lewis didn't put it in those words exactly, but that was one of my biggest intellectual questions, you know, was uh, why should I go on believing that that Jesus was uh, divine? What intellectual reasons are there for believing that? And so, Lewis really helped helped me with mm. that. Then, as as the years went on, yes, he definitely has has shaped my theology in many ways. The first book that I published on Lewis uh, was uh, Mere Theology, a guide to C.S. Lewis's thought by uh, InterVarsity Press. And so, you know, that that book kind of outlines, even though I don't say, you know, where I agree with him or disagree with him, I pretty much agree with him on a lot of things. And and so each chapter in that book, all of those different themes have have influenced me. I think one of the big ones also would be Lewis's view of of scripture, that the Bible is human literature lifted up to be the vehicle of God's communication to us. And if I could have fully like absorbed that when I was in seminary, it would have saved me a lot of blood, sweat and tears over that that whole issue, you know, of what exactly is the Bible? You know, Lewis just puts it so well in reflections on the Psalms. So, mm. you know, that's just a couple places where where Lewis has influenced me at I guess another one would be um, stemming out of his biography, you know, just the fact that he submitted himself to the discipline of, of meeting with a spiritual director and practicing confession to a priest, even though he wasn't Catholic, even though it wasn't required of him as an Anglican, uh, he did it for his own spiritual growth. So that led me eventually to seek out the, the same thing. I spent about four years in spiritual direction with a Catholic priest. That was a very impactful season in my life. But I, I wouldn't have thought of doing that if it hadn't been for C.S. Lewis's example. You might be acting as a, a nudge for the Lord right now because I have been, for the last six months, people have been, 
the Lord has been nudging me to, to seek a Catholic priest for spiritual direction. <laughs> so this might be another sign here. You know, these days there's all sorts of people that practice spiritual direction. And so it's, it's really a matter of finding somebody that's a fit for you. You know, I, I tried it with one other person before I found the right fit with the particular Catholic priest that mm-hmm. I went to. You know, I, I could just as well have fallen in with somebody from a different, uh, you know, Presbyterian or Methodist or, or whatever. It, in my case, it happened to be a Catholic priest. You know, so it was a time of learning for me about Catholic doctrine as well, not because the priest foisted it on me, but because I had questions. I, I said, can we discuss the Catholic catechism together? And and he's like, sure, you know, yeah, we can do that. In the order of your timeline, was this before or after you had your conversations with Sheldon? Because I know obviously his journey ended up leading there. Many years after that, yes. Yes, I had many conversations with Sheldon Van Auken about his journey into the mm-hmm. Catholic Church and his... Um, beliefs. I'm sure at times it felt to him like I was trying to convert him back to being a Protestant. He wanted to assure me that he wasn't really trying to convert me, but he was open to discussing many things. And we had some some great conversations. And um, over a number of letters, he sent me Every single Catholic answer tract that he had, uh, some of the, our listeners may know about oh, Catholic man, answers, yeah. and that was a great um, source of, of things to discuss, and uh, we had great conversations together. I'm still Protestant, by the way, but... <laughs> <laughs> Being in San Diego, and our other co-host, David, is in San Diego. His wife used to work um, for Catholic Answers. And so we've been very fortunate to have a fun relationship with Trent Horn from the Council of Trent uh, and have some. We had him on to talk about objective morality from Lewis's perspective, I guess. Um, Trent mm. had just written a book on objective morality. Very important. Yes. And one that actually out of all of Lewis's things, that was the hardest one for me to fully understand uh, as the argument for God. Well, The Abolition of Man is a difficult book, even though it's a slim little Volume, it's it's dense, uh-huh. and so you have to go really slowly through Yes. It. So speaking of Sheldon here, before we circle back to your time with Douglas and Mary, listeners, you can go to the season five conversation with him. So we're going to keep this, uh, we won't dive into too much to this, but for anyone who's new, obviously, as seasons have gone by, we've gained new listeners, lost the listeners probably, um, and so you have a little bit of turnover. What would you say is like one of the best things about A Severe Mercy? Like if you had to tell them, hey, go check out A Severe Mercy. This is a wonderful book because you're going to learn things about this. Uh, what would be kind of your little pitch for A Severe Mercy being someone who knows it so well? The only way I have of explaining it is to explain how I came to the book. Hmm. So, yeah. so remember, I had this youth pastor in junior high and high school and in college who was this huge C.S. Lewis fan. His name is Sonny Salisbury. Sonny, if you're listening uh, to this, you know, this is a tribute to you. Part of our youth group was involved in a teen choir, and he would lead us on on a special choir tour at least once a year. But to be able to go on the choir tour, you had to read books. (laughs) Other than the Bible, you had to read (laughs) Christian books. And even while we were on the tour, he would pass around a box of books for us to pick out what we were going to read while we were on the trip together. 
And so here we were on this bus driving from San Diego all the way up uh, the coast to the Canadian border. And he, he passed this box of books around and there were a bunch of paperbacks and I reached in and and pulled out this book that stood out to me because C.S. Lewis's name was in really bold print on the, the cover of this paperback called A Severe Mercy. But it wasn't by C.S. Lewis. It just It's by Sheldon Van Auken. And then it said, you know, 18 previously unpublished uh, letters from C.S. Lewis. So I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. <laughs> Had no idea what the book was about. And I started into the first chapter and I gave up. I absolutely gave up in the first chapter. And over the years, I've talked to many people who've tried to read the book and um, had the same experience their first time trying to read through it. They got bogged down in the first chapter and they, they don't go any farther. So that's the first thing is when you pick up the book, make sure you keep going after the first chapter because it gets better and it gets easier. It's fantastic advice. <laughs> and and now I love the whole book and I love that first chapter and but at the time it just didn't have enough action for me. But but the book is really three books in one. It's a love story, it's a conversion story and it's a grief story. Mm. And here I was a young guy reading it, you know, the the grief part of the story didn't mean as much to me then as it does now, but I was fascinated with his conversion story, identified with a lot of it, even though I was very different in many ways, but and also the the love story, because I was an un- idealistic young guy, and I read that, and I thought, oh, I want to go out and find my Davy, you know, his wife's <laughs> uh, nickname, you know. I've been married for 35 years uh, now. I remember when I mm-hmm. gave the book to my wife to read, when she got to the part where Van and Davy decide they're going to share everything, including all the books that they've read, they would they would read all the books that each other had read before they met each other. My wife turned to me and said, if you think I'm going to do that, you, you have another thing coming. <laughs> you know, because here I'd been to seminary uh-huh. and read a lot of books. She was simply not interested in. But um, so I have a much more realistic view of marriage now than the idealistic view I had when I first read the book. But I would say long-winded answer to say the one thing that stands out to me about the book is the same thing that stands out to me about C.S. Lewis, that Lewis and Van Auken both talk about these eternal longings that we have mm. that are not satisfied by anything in this life, in this in this world, which Lewis says is an argument for the fact that we were made for another world. And basically, uh, Van Auken says the same thing. But Here's the real plus. Lewis writes and Van Auken writes in such a way that he doesn't just tell you about these longings. Their writing stirs the longing in you Mm. by the way that they write, whether it's uh, fiction or or nonfiction. Uh, Lewis is much better at it, I would say, honestly, than Van Auken is. But Van Auken, at least in A Severe Mercy, is is great at it too. That reading that book just stirs these immortal longings. I don't think I've ever had someone, or at least it didn't hit me, point that out, that truth. I, I'm obviously very aware with Lewis writing about the role of longing, 
I think I've ever put out, Lewis has stirred longing within me. And you're so right. My 10 second journey was from atheism to reading mere Christianity in a very dark period and realizing, I don't know if this is true, but this seems like this would bring joy and happiness, which is kind of another way of saying there was some longing that was stirred in me as I'm reading mere Christianity of like, this seems like it's tapping into something I've been searching for in 10 other ways that has been failing miserably up until this point in my life. I really like that. Thanks for putting it in that framework. <laughs> that, that's I, I like hearing what your journey is because it's the flip side of mine. <laughs> I knew Christianity and faith in Christ could be emotionally transformative, could could make a person supremely, maybe not happy, but joyful. Yep. But I wasn't sure whether it was true. Ah, you are. We are, Yeah, we were the opposites there a little bit. <laughs> and, and so see, reading C.S. Lewis helped to convince me that, yes, indeed, it is true. Mm, I love that. I was kind of like Lewis in that way in that I didn't trust myself fully to give my myself you know, fully, because it's like it says in the Bible, you know, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with mm. all our mind, with all our soul and all our, our strength. And Lewis has really helped me with the mind part. Mm. But then secondarily, the longings, you know, of our hearts. Lewis just speaks to that. He he stirs it in you by the way he writes and points you to where the satisfaction can be found. Mm, I love that. That's so well said. Well, for this last part here, let's finally circle up to the Douglas and Mary. I think that was, I was honestly quite unexpected. I did not know you had that in your life when I came across that. And I'm really glad you uh, really developed that chapter and, and dove into that pretty deeply because I thought that was a really cool, unique experience in many senses that I think a lot of people would love a little glimpse into. So, can you just set that up of, of what this period was, you're invited there, what that looks like, what your day looks like, kind of how that ended up impacting you in the long run to where you are now today? Yes. Well, and, and I'm still a friend of Douglas Gresham. Like I said earlier, you know, he gave me permission to use this photograph of he and Jack on Addison's Walk uh -huh. that was taken in 1960, shortly after Joy Davidman Lewis uh, passed away from cancer. And the photograph is actually taken by Doug's biological father, Bill Gresham, hmm. who uh, went over to England for a visit with his sons in the autumn of 1960. I came to know Douglas Gresham during that time when I was uh, starting a C.S. Lewis Society for the first time, and I wanted to get to know other people who knew Lewis. And, and so our friendship began through email. And I was not just asking him questions ab about Lewis and about his own life. I, I read his autobiography, Lenten Lands, which is a wonderful book. I, I read that for the first time uh, right before I started emailing him. He is, in his own way, such a, a caring person, you know, that he wasn't satisfied with just giving me answers about what he had experienced about Lewis, he asked about my my own life, and and we quickly became uh, friends. And then, like I said, I met him for the first time on that C.S. Lewis tour I led to um, England with my wife. And from the first, getting to know Doug and learning about the ministry that he and his wife had in Ireland called Rathvinden, that was the name of their house, Rathvinden House, in uh, Lachlan Bridge, County Carlow, about 60 miles southwest of Dublin. And 
God had led them through a series of circumstances to establish themselves in this house and to open their their house, which was this 12-bedroom Irish country house on uh, 20 acres, and they opened their home to whoever God would bring to them. Mm. But they didn't advertise. <laughs> they didn't advertise. They weren't like most Americans who... Uh, you know, Doug used to say, um, Americans are great for asking the question, what is your vision for your ministry? You know, and he's, <laughs> that's me. He would say, we don't, we don't have a vision for our ministry. You know, it's, it's God's vision. And, you know, we're just opening ourselves to him. And we believe God wanted us to open our, our home to whoever God would send to us. And, and so that's what they did. And from the first hearing about that, I thought, you know, I really want to, visit them over there and and see what their ministry is is like in this place where they're living. So my wife and I and our kids, uh, we went there for the first time in 2002. And then in the the following year, I went through a huge transition in, in my life where I needed to step out of ministry for a period of time. And, and just have a time of, uh, renewal in my life. I compare it to like when a washing machine goes out of balance, <laughs> you know, and you hear the thump, thump, thump. You know, my life was like that at the time. It was just out of balance and, and it was starting to, to thump. And I, I needed to turn off the washing machine and, and reorganize everything. And that was the point in time at which Doug and Mary opened their home to to us, not only to come and have a time of renewal, but to engage with them in in the ministry that they had there. So we uh, picked up roots and moved to Ireland, not knowing how long we were going to stay there. This was in 2004, and our invitation to stay there was actually until June of 2005. Mm. We ended up actually staying there with them for about eight months, and that was during the time when they were making the first uh, Narnia movie of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and the filming was happening in New Zealand and Doug was traveling back and forth a lot, and he wanted to be able to take Mary with him, but they needed to have somebody they felt they could trust to look after the ministry and their home while they were uh, away. And and so our being there enabled them to do that. And our kids had a wonderful time living in Ireland for eight months and, and going to an Irish school. And yeah, it was an incredible time of renewal in our lives. What was one or two things that came out of that, like just conversations with potentially other people that were there or Douglas or them that just really had an impact on you uh, in your family and then maybe your theology, your prayer life, relationship with Christ, maybe what you decided to do afterwards. I mean, sounds like if I'm understanding this correctly, you were more in the capacity of like <laughs> a one below, but like partner with Douglas. So other people were coming and staying in these other rooms. So you're meeting other people as well. Yes. Yeah. We had people visiting from all over the world, you know, wow. from from England and and South Africa and uh, America and just just all over. And so that was an amazing experience too. All the other people that we got to meet, some of whom were were still in touch with all these years later. There were just so many everyday sorts of things that that happened during that time that were so special. We began every day uh in prayer with Doug and Mary. We would meet with them and 
and just commit our day to the Lord uh, together every day. Just so many things happened in in the course of uh, our everyday work. A a lot of what we helped with was uh, Mary is a very keen gardener, and she had this huge garden and orchard that they basically lived off of. They didn't uh, raise any meat, so that was one of the few things they would buy. They lived off the vegetables and and the fruit and everything that they grew. And so a lot of our work centered around helping in, in the garden and taking care of guests and cleaning around the house. And so there were things that came up in, in just every day going about our work. And I'll read you um, one of them. Mm. One day we were working in the garden and Mary was hanging out clothes to dry on her clothesline. And she looked at the sky and said, rain may be coming later. I might have to hang these clothes to dry in the airing cupboard. (laughs) What did you say? I practically shouted across the garden. I said, I might have to put these clothes in the airing cupboard. Where is the airing cupboard? Can you show it to me? I wouldn't know. (laughs) I knew the request sounded strange to Mary, but I really did not know what an airing cupboard was. I had read the phrase in a letter written by C.S. Lewis, and so I was anxious to see such a cupboard. Mary led me inside her house to an upstairs hallway. She opened a large closet with a water heater and said, that's my airing cupboard. Any warm cupboard would do for hanging wet clothes up to dry on a rainy day. I thanked Mary and then shared with her the Lewis quote as I remembered it. Lewis once wrote these words to a former student whom he was able to lead to faith in Jesus Christ. I know all about the despair of overcoming chronic temptations. It is not serious, provided self-offended petulance, annoyance at breaking records, impatience, etc., doesn't get the upper hand. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. It is the very sign of his presence. Mm. And that just became my my favorite C.S. Lewis quote at, at that time because uh, I was very much right there at that point that Lewis describes of of seeing a lot of dirt in in my life. And Lewis was so encouraging that you know all I needed to focus on was just getting up <laughs> and taking uh, the next step and and. Christ will will see to it that we make it home in the end. Honestly, I don't think we could have scripted a better last thing to leave the listeners with. <laughs> so beautiful. That is what I'd want to leave everybody with. That's always my goal with any conversation. It's and whenever just talking about Lewis is just some sort of takeaway that people can have in their lives. And so I love that. Well, Will, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, before we kind of sign off here, where can listeners learn more about you? So buy a copy of the specific book, any of your other resources, any online presence that you have? So I have a website, willvoss.com. That's W-I-L-L-V, like in victory, A-U-S.com. 
I also have a blog, willvoss.blogspot.com. So I'm on Blogger, so you can find me there. And all my books are available on Amazon. You can find out about all the books there. If, if any of the listeners want a signed copy, they can uh, write to me uh, directly and we can arrange that. That is awesome. Well, I hear the call for the final drinks. And so thank you again, Will, for coming on the show. And thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah, and to all of our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joel, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. And we pray for all of our listeners and all the prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you enjoyed this episode, please write to us telling us about it. We'll pass this along or you can email Will directly. We always love just hearing you guys' thoughts when you hear these things. And so please join us next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.